gets really hard to avoid because I think any time that you sort of actually get into you know the 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 political weeds, it's 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 just so tempting to try to justify what you're doing in economic terms because it's so taken for granted that that's what you need to do. the death panel if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pre-order health communism or request it at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore So today, Phil and I are here with Elizabeth Pop Berman. Beth is a sociologist and an associate professor of organizational studies at the University of Michigan. And we have Beth here today to talk about her brand new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. Beth, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to finally have you on the show. Thanks. I'm really happy to be talking with you today. Yeah, we've been waiting for this day for a very long time. This I've I've heard about this book project for a really really long time and uh this is and I you know from the moment I heard about it I was like we have to get Beth on. This is like <laughs> classic death panel content. I've been waiting for a very long time for it to be done, so we're all we're all happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and uh, I'm so happy to have you here to talk about this book because first of all it's fantastic and congratulations. I'm obviously biased, we're all biased here because there are a lot of common themes in your book that overlap with our interests on the show, especially right. when it comes to, you know, thinking through how the boundaries of reasonable policy are defined. Um, And it's not just about bad actors, but about the methods, the analysis, the norms, all of that stuff that's been naturalized. And your book offers such a great look at a really under-examined and under-discussed angle on how efficiency came to dominate as kind of the only rational measurement of what good policy is. Anyways, there's so much to talk about, but to start us off, Beth, can you quickly set up for people who might not know your work um, or who might not have read your first book, which is also fantastic, how the project of the book came to be or how it sort of fits into your broader body of research, maybe as a way to sort of lead into talking briefly about, you know, what the economic style framework is that you develop in this book? Yeah, I mean, so I guess, broadly speaking, I'm an economic sociologist, and I've always been really interested in and of how we create the boundaries around what kinds of things we're going to treat as markets and what kinds of things we aren't. And so my my first book was about universities, actually. Uh, it was called Creating the Market University, How Academic Science Became an Economic Engine. And in that, I was really focused on trying to understand, you know, why did science become something that was entrepreneurial, that we sort of treated it as, as uh, something that had market value? And you know, the the punchline to that ended up being much more of a story that was a policy story and a story about the the state than I thought. <laughs> and yeah, and so that was kind of what led me in this direction, you know, with, with the sort of takeaway of that book was, well, people in Washington kind of glommed onto this idea in the in the late 70s that technological innovation drives economic growth. And so they made a bunch of changes to try to promote innovation. Uh, with the, with the aim of eventually driving growth, and you know, and that just kind of got me interested in this in this broader question of why did 
uh, you know, why is it that economic ideas have this kind of influence in the first place? And, and you know, and I think the other the other sort of background piece that was the the other motivator is just that, you know, somebody who kind of came of political age in the 90s and as a progressive really feeling like there were a lot of constraints to the range mm-hmm. of policy and in particular, right, like why, you know, why are these sorts of complicated market mechanisms sort of the most ambitious thing we can think about in, in policy? And so sort of the, you know, the combination of that intellectual interest and then this sort of, you know, background uh, political question about just why does it feel like our political imaginary is so limited? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really felt like that was at the heart of this book. I was I was as I was reading it, I was like, you know, it might not if you're like, you know, the the term economist you know, might uh, cause somebody to like run away in fear to have their like eyes glaze over. Like this book doesn't really feel even like a history of economics or a study of, uh, of economics as a field. It really feels like a history to me of the landscape of American politics over the last 50 years and how the horizons of uh, sort of political and, and policy horizons have narrowed such that, you know, by the time that there's like this moment of opportunity, say for like, you know, national health reform, what we get is the Affordable Care Act rather Mm -hmm. than anything that looks like national health insurance. And what was interesting to me, and and maybe this, you can get into this a little bit, is it wasn't immediately apparent to me why one would focus on the economists. You know, I think there's like sort of one, I think, like perspective on, on power in Washington or one way of studying power is that you study, you know, the, uh, the organizational like substructure of the parties and you study um, the role of capital and you study capital's interpenetration into the state. And in that perspective, economists are just sort of like the, uh, I don't know, the marionettes of policymaking or politics. Like they're not, they're not the most like agents, you know, agentic or powerful people. They're just sort of recapitulating what, you know, power wants to hear. But as I read your book, I realized like there is something that we really miss when we don't study not just economics, but as you say, the economic style of reasoning. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why study economists and also why study a style of reasoning as a way of understanding, as I often tell my students, like, quote unquote, why why we can't have nice things in American politics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. Um you know, so, right, like, I think there's another version of this story you could tell in which, you know, capital is driving everything and, you know, which economists end up being able to have influence at particular moments is purely a product of these, like, broader political economic changes, you know, there would be truth to that story as well. I mean, I think the reason that I really honed in on um, on economists and on, you know, people who are broadly trained in economic reasoning, which doesn't necessarily mean that they themselves are, are economists. Right. Yeah, right. But is really because, you know, because I really see that as being how some of these bigger political changes that were going on were sort of, were sort of locked in and they were locked in by, by integrating a different way of thinking into the sort of the machinery of policy. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it gets locked into all these different locations within the federal bureaucracy. It gets, mm-hmm. uh, influences how law is taught and how judges think about decisions. You know, it has all these sorts of effects that are, you know, not really about who's got power to make any individual policy decisions, but are about, you know, what's the space of possibilities that, that we're dealing with in the first place? You know, what what's the range of options that we're considering when we start thinking, okay, well, 
what might what might our policy possibilities be here? And so that's how I think um, you know both economists and the economic style of reasoning really matter. And and I think for the style of reasoning itself, so you know, so what am I actually talking about here? I mean, really, we're talking about kind of a a way of thinking that's first of all, it's it's microeconomic. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty econ 101. You know, it's a focus on uh, incentives, efficiency, trade offs. You know, thinking at the margin. You know, the, the sort of very basic concepts that give you a lens for uh, evaluating what good policy looks like. You know, and that tend to um, not necessarily. You know, they don't necessarily have to go along with a strong free market orientation, but they do tend to go along with the belief that markets are a really good way to. Um, produce, you know, efficient outcomes that, and, and you know, which is kind of in some ways synonymous with good outcomes. Yeah. And it's, and, and I think that one thing that's interesting is that that is a very different style of economic reasoning than the kind of economic reasoning that permeated, say, the programs of the New Deal, which were obviously influenced by economists, people like the University of Wisconsin um, and others were, were pretty instrumental in developing the kind of social insurance type programs that people might associate with the new deal. But like what changed in both like government and in, in the field of economics that made it such that rather than thinking about those kind of like broad uh, social programs, social insurance, and even to some extent later, like regulation to some, you know, the market-based mechanisms of governance, what, what changed in government in the field of economics to make all of that possible. Yeah, so so prior to World War II, uh, you know, when you're talking about the New Deal, right, there were these institutional economists who were quite influential, who had a very different way of, of thinking about policy that was, you know, pretty distant from what we think about as economics today, and much more, uh, you know, much more qualitative in some ways, or at least, you know, not, not mathematical. It was more focused on the specifics of law and of history, on institutional details. And then you had a sort of Keynesian wave of macroeconomists who followed after that, who were really important from, uh, you know, from the 40s into the 60s. I mean, and beyond in some ways. But what really changed in some ways was that you had a new set of tools that came out of World War II, where you had people working in this very interdisciplinary space, but that gave people new tools for for optimizing and for thinking about how to make choices within constraints. And after the war, there were a couple different things going on. One was that some of these ideas were being developed at places like the Rand Corporation, which I talk a lot about in the book, and which was really a place where some of these ideas were taken in a more applied direction. And it was also happening in a different way in departments of economics, where you sort of had these older institutionalist uh, economists being sort of marginalized and squeezed out. Um, you know, this was also not unrelated to the the Red Scare that was going on. There were, you know, there had been neoclassical economists, people who were sort of working from this broadly microeconomic framework, you know, prior to World War II as well, right? That dates mm-hmm. back to the early 20th century. But you know, b- but during this 1950s period, you really have this consolidation um, around what's sometimes called the neoclassical synthesis. That's sort of, you know, broadly Keynesian at the micro level, uh, neoclass or at the macro level, neoclassical at the micro level. And, you know, and within economics departments, you know, once that's consolidated, um, you know, of course, it evolves over time. But in a lot of ways, uh, that, that core, and especially what that core looks like at the introductory levels, has been, you know, relatively stable for the last, what is that, 60 to 70 years, which is surprising. <laughs> right? this, this, is why, this is why I have to deal with the Econ 101 bros in my life. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I love the way very early on in the book, Bethy used specifically the word durable, which has not left my brain since I first read it, because it is it has this durability, I think, built into it that makes people think that it is a kind of like a naturally good thing that just it kind of occurs in nature, that this economic style of reasoning that it became dominant because it was um, it was right and kind of the answer that we finally came to. Like, it's almost like the magic of evolution. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I really wanted to try to convey in this book was, um, you know, that, that this has been around for such a long time now and is so naturalized to us in some ways that it's hard to imagine that it could have ever been controversial or sort of been yeah. something that you had to sell in right. policy circles, you know. Um, but in the 1950s, when economists were suggesting some of the ideas that kind of fit within this framework, you know, they were really seen as being kind of uh, heretical, right? They were they right. were seen as just not reasonable at all. Why? Um, Why was that? What 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 was the assault or the initial attack on this style of? Re- I mean, it's like it is so funny because it is so naturalized now. Like, how were they? Right. What was the uh, assault on that back then? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, to give you, uh, there's sort of of one classic example of uh, Ronald Coase in the 50s developed this proposal to uh, to auction off the electromagnetic spectrum uh, at the FCC, right? Uh, so this is something that he pitched this idea in the 1950s. Um, he did it as part of a RAND Corporation report. You know, at the time, the spectrum was um, uh, administered through uh, administrative means. You know, basically, you know, in theory, they were supposed to be reviewing who they could assign the spectrum to, uh, you, the companies would apply and the, the public interest was supposed to be sort of a criterion. Um, you know, in practice, it was political. It was, it was just sort of based on who already had it. Uh, but it was definitely not done with the intent of raising money or sort of making efficient use of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And when Coase proposed this idea, it was so controversial that Rand suppressed the report for a whole year. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because it was just seen as like offensive, the idea that you could auction off the public airwaves. And it was, you know, eventually it did come out, but, you know, he was called before Congress and people sort of, you know, members of Congress kind of made fun of him. Um, and of course, you know, by the 1980s, this is very much on the table. In the 1990s, it becomes the new way that we do things. Um, right. And, you know, and today if you argue no, against it, you're laughed at. Right. Right. It's- yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's there's a lot of these kinds of examples where there was just a different way of thinking about a particular policy space that made this economic approach to policymaking seem not just misguided, but sort of offensive. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, this is actually what's fascinating is, you know, how this approach to thinking about the the public uh, interest and about um, public institutions and, and sort of what government should do and how it should do it, the logics that you should use. There's initially so, you know, controversial and even maybe laughable mm-hmm. get, get brought in. So you talked about the Rand Corporation, which, you know, is, is a really, you know, I think important institution in, in telling this story. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of what Rand's role was in bringing some of these ideas in, because I think most people who think about the, or, you know, the popular understanding or popular imagination of, of like the Rand Corporation in, in the fifties is, you know, it's like this shadowy think tank in Santa Monica. People associate it with like Herman Kahn, who's the ba- right. one of the bases for, for Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. And, and most, most of the time people think about it as like the thermonuclear war kind of think tank, but there's a lot more, 
almost sort of like pedestrian research that they're doing too. And that's actually what you talk about as being super influential. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think like one one thing that's important to know about Rand is that while that view of it is, you know, that's relatively accurate in some ways, um, it was also really this intellectual powerhouse in the 1950s. And so, you know, and, and, and particularly its economics department. And so, um, you know, the people who were actually employed there full time were, were, were big names, the people who came as consultants and would spend their summer there. You know, we're talking Nobel Prize winners, um, you know, people from all the top departments. Um, so it was a really a hothouse environment for, for yeah. you know, intellectual work. Um, and, you know, really the core thing that, that, that Rand was trying to do in the 1950s is, you know, they were solving problems for the Air Force. The Air Force was their primary uh, supporter. Um, mm-hmm. And the Air Force wanted to know, uh, you know, how best to uh, protect the U.S. from uh, potential uh, nuclear attack. Right. And so a lot of what Rand was trying to do was find sort of formal methods of decision making that would provide optimal outcomes subject to you know, relatively complex constraints. Mm-hmm. And what it turned out was initially, you know, initially they had kind of mostly natural scientists, engineers, physicists working on this stuff. Um, the answers they weren't coming up with were, weren't very good. Um, and it turned out that economists just sort of had better tools for thinking about this kind of choice within constraints uh, set of questions that they were that they were looking at. And so so the economists um, in the 1950s within Rand became much more powerful, much more influential. But by the end of the decade, they were both not thrilled that the Air Force was not taking them seriously because they kept telling the Air Force things that didn't want to hear. <laughs> um, and, and they also, you know, they also kind of were interested in having a bigger stage. And so they kind of created an uh, alliance with the Kennedy uh, administration. Well, I mean, it was the Kennedy campaign before Kennedy was elected, went behind the Air Force's back a little bit on this. Um, fortunately for them, Kennedy was elected. And when that was the case, he uh, brought in Robert McNamara to run the Defense Department. Right. McNamara immediately pointed Charles Hitch, who was the head of Rand's Department of Economics, to come and introduce these new ways of thinking about policy decisions, about thinking about you know, rational decisions around budgeting uh, and to implement them into the Defense Department. And so that was kind of how it got into Washington in the first place. But from from there, you end up having a situation where it, it's initially perceived as very effective within defense. And of course, you know, we could talk about what happened in defense with, you know, McNamara's whiz kids, you know, after 1965 is a whole other story. Right. But in those first few right. years, right, it was seen as very it was seen as very good at what it was doing. And by 1965, um, President Johnson decided, hey, this is looking good. Let's roll this out across all federal agencies. And so effectively, what you have is this set of budgeting techniques uh, that was developed for the Defense Department begins to be implemented all across federal government. So all the other federal agencies have to use these same sort of techniques. And it brings a lot of people uh, with them. It brings um, it creates new policy programs, you know, I could keep going, but but that's kind of the initial pathway into uh, into government. Well, and I think this is, you know, this offers like a really important perspective, right? Because so often you kind of think of, I guess, the sort of economic lens as being something that is politically neutral 
And because it's neutral in some sense, it it kind of just naturally was um, taken up in institutions. And I feel like what your book actually kind of shows is that that neutrality, right, maybe that perception of neutrality of economics being neutral comes from the fact that this isn't something that's necessarily being, um, you know, this is this is not just conservatives, right? This is also mainstream Democrats. This also kind of begins to take on this logic um, as it's institutionalized, where subtlety is part of its influence, right? And this kind of uh, subtle practicality that this analytic approach offers kind of, I think it really, as it starts to become embedded in institutional structures and processes via networks and education and law and rules and policy implementation, you know, this has this really lasting impact on what even becomes like serious policy once these guys start to become entrenched in, you know, beyond, I guess, the defense industry. Could you talk a little bit about how this idea of neutrality sort of becomes, I guess, part of the reputation of the economic style of reasoning? Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, you know, I think this piece of it that you're pointing to that, that efficiency as a value has this appearance of neutrality is like really central to this, this whole, this whole argument, right? Because, you know, nobody wants things to be less efficient just for its own sake, right? Like there's no, you know, no, no, nobody's arguing like, let's just make things less efficient because that's our goal. Um, but you know what efficiency has that that allows it to convey this appearance of neutrality is it you know it tends to be you know tied to the idea that that we can you know, that we can kind of do these calculations that we have the capacity to you know, to identify these optimal uh, decision pathways or optimal ways to you know spend money to regulate whatever it is <laughs> you know what, what's kind of hidden by that is the ways that efficiency often comes into conflict with other kinds of values and. In the case of Democrats, these are often values that had kind of historically been pretty successful for the party, whether you're talking about, um, you know, regulatory programs from the New Deal that were really focused on creating stability because they were created in the midst of, you know, a time when everything was was crashing. And that was a big concern, you know, whether you're talking about um, something like Social Security that's based in part on, on this idea that, you know, if we create universal programs, they'll be politically resilient. Um, that that's that 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 universality is a value either because we want it to be universal or because it's it's a politically a good idea. And you know, you could think about anything that's got something to do with that's sort of based in an argument about rights around rights to a clean environment or you know a right to health care. I mean, any of these kinds of things, um, th- those sorts of fundamental values are often going to be in attention with efficiency because you know making programs that are universal is never going to be, uh, the the at least the short term most efficient option, um, you know, right. saying something that is an absolute right means that you know sometimes it might be costly to actually uh, actually enforce that right. Um, but so you know so so that's going to be in tension with efficiency. And so I think what gets what what disappears is that these are all moral choices, um, and and efficiency is something that's often in tension with these other values, even as nobody is really arguing against efficiency as. You know, preferable to no efficiency, right? Right. And, and this is actually maybe the most interesting part of the story, because mm-hmm. I, what I think is really valuable about your account is is not just that you uh, locate the, you know, the change in the kind of advice that the major uh, political parties are getting, because, you know, I, I think it's if I think about like why 
is the gov- you know sort of governing style of reasoning so different in the United States maybe than it is other places is that like one thing that's distinctive about American politics is we we don't have mass membership parties with their own like you know largely like union influence like research shops that that influence uh you know government you have this very porous state formation so like a sufficiently concentrated group of economists with a certain set of ideas is like it's pretty easy to penetrate the way that the state thinks about things like it wasn't ultimately that hard for this style of thinking um to penetrate but what you show is like it, there's no like conspiracy theory Right. Uh, that that illustrates why this happened. It's you know I think that when people talk about Hayek and Mont Pelerin society and the sort of the right wing, you know, uh, influences on economics in the in the latter part of the 20th century. I mean, sure they were influential, uh, but it's really important to understand how these things emerge because they don't just emerge through shadowy machinations. They emerge because these uh, uh, economists and their Uh, sort of political patrons make arguments about why this style of reasoning is makes sense and will actually help us lead better lives. And I'm I'm curious because, you know, you really locate a lot of the infrastructure for some of the things that I think are maybe most important for us on this show, specifically something like the Rand health insurance experiment, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, one of the, the kind of pivotal moments in, in the development of this idea that, you know, you have to have this private cost control oriented uh, sort of disciplined consumer uh, approach to having health insurance. Like how, you know, what, what is the appeal? Like how, how is that being sold to the public and to sort of political principles? Why does it have that allure? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a way to think about this whole story. And, you know, this is this is this is one that I came to fairly late in the process of writing. And I think it's it's in there, but I'm not sure it shows as clearly as a through line as as I might think it deserves. It's like there's really a way to read this whole story as being a reaction to the success of of state expansion in some ways, right? In the in the 1960s, you've got, you know, you've got the war on poverty, you've got the Great Society, you know, that's kind of followed by a period where you've got a big expansion of regulatory efforts, you know, uh, the EPA is created. And all these things kind of create, like backlash is too strong, but they create a demand for techniques for controlling them, right? And so it's really all the money that's sort of created by the Great Society that creates this new demand to find ways to use it effectively, think about how to be Know, cost effective and how we're spending it. Think about evaluating where things are good and where things are bad. And that's a lot of what kind of carries this, um, you know, this 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 broad way of thinking into these locations within, you know, kind of within the, the, the bowels of the federal bureaucracy. And so, yeah, so it's absolutely not a conspiracy theory kind of story or even, right, like the Chicago school story is kind of, a, I mean, it is a story of like intentional like relatively collective effort sure. to change things. You know, there's no real right. equivalent of that on this side. Um, but because wherever you have this 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 state expansion, it does kind of produce this reaction of, okay, you know, we've got this. Now how do we manage to control it? And and that's really where I think you sort of see this this stuff emerge. And I think right in, in healthcare, this really comes out of uh, you know, well, what happens as soon as Medicare and Medicaid are passed? Well, you know, spending starts to go up really fast. And then immediately you have questions about, OK, well, what are we going to do for cost control? Um, right. And, you know, the answer to that is we 
turn to uh, economists for thinking about it. You know, health economics wasn't even really a thing at that point. But like, that's the first times that you start to get people uh, who are really trying to think about healthcare from an economic perspective and who, uh, you know, it's a pretty short pathway from that to, you know, what you point out, the Rand Health Insurance Experiment and, um, you know, sort of a much larger infrastructure for thinking about healthcare in this way, you know, within a few years. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's something that comes through so strong in your book, especially when you talk about how the kind of desire for this reasoning, because it is such a sort of effective tool in terms of projecting neutrality and, um, you know, efficiency becomes a kind of like desirable policy trait, right? It's um, it's almost like trendy in a way um, because of these network effects, because of these sort of like social, the social influence of all of these people and sort of who they're working with and who they're training and who those people are training and how the textbooks get written, right? It's so much more, um, it's so much more diffuse, right? It's like very hard to actually sort of pinpoint. It just seems like, oh, well, it sort of must be true because it's suddenly everywhere. And it's it's interesting because to me, what uh, I kept thinking of when I was reading your book was uh, things like the uh, issue of deinstitutionalization in the United States, which really starts becoming mm-hmm. um, a problem for both federal and state governments in the 1950s as you have this growing movement to end the massive publicly funded asylum and state hospital system and to actually like liberate people and open community-based mental health services. And this was something that was like a huge part of Kennedy's first term. And he campaigned, you know, on doing things like the Community Mental Health Service Act uh, in 1963, which, you know, set up these kinds of really interesting schemas, which allowed a lot of experimentation at the state level. And you sort of have that as a policy trend, right? And what is going on in deinstitutionalization is that you have a really specific moral argument that is winning in the public and it is winning in the courts, which is that, you know, people do not deserve to be warehoused in these sort of carceral um, institutions that lack care. You know, there are all these exposés. There's a lot of attention on it. It's a very clear moral issue. But what's also the problem is that these facilities are, um, you know, full of unionized uh, security guards, for example. And those unions then oppose the closure of these facilities. You have the problem of many of the families of the people who are living in these facilities not really having any other options, right? So oftentimes, sometimes parents groups oppose the closure of the facilities. And furthermore, the sort of other constituency is that you have homeowners opposing the building of new smaller group homes in the community saying, we don't want people living near our homes who were, you know, institutionalized, that we don't, those people don't belong in our community. And it's really fascinating because, you know, this kind of, you know, this kind of knowledge production economy that you talk about in your book of of sort of training people in schools of public policy, training people in the economic style of reasoning, that becomes a tremendous resource for people like New York State Governor um, Mario Cuomo to rely upon when you're dealing with something like the Willowbrook scandal, uh, you know, in the 70s, where you've basically had 20 years of contentious demands for the closure of institutions and state hospitals. We have all these constituencies. It's really a, a high tension moral issue. What at the end of the day sort of comes in as the means of 
quelling this as a political problem is to impose the economic style of reasoning as the primary condition of deinstitutionalization and sort of supersede that moral aspect. And I think, you know, largely as a result, you you do not see deinstitutionalization ever really happen in the United States. This is still an ongoing project. And I was thinking so much as I was reading your book about how it's not that it's sort of convenience. It's not that it's sort of um, conspiracy, as we're saying. It really, um, I think it's kind of like a mutually supportive and developing intellectual movement that reflects and and sort of is influenced also by what's going on policy-wise at the time and what's just going on in sort of all sorts of other arenas. And I think you do a very careful job of trying to make that clear to readers that it is just so much more complicated than um, the sort of stories that we tell ourselves about how how things come to be dominant. Yeah. And and, and I think, right, like, I think, you know, what, what you're what you're sort of pointing to that I think is is a more general pattern in some of these cases is that economic reasoning often helps solve political problems for somebody, right? Um, you know, that, 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 you know, just to kind of give one other, one other example of, of this in a, in a pretty dramatic way, you know, at the, at the beginning of the, um, war on poverty, you know, probably, uh, some people at least know that, know the story, but the war on poverty started, started out with this very, uh, orientation towards community action and this idea of political participation by poor people. And that, you know, if we could sort of, this sort of giving people a voice, uh, was sort of integral to, giving people a political voice was integral to ending poverty and giving people the, the the tools to change their their conditions. And so right that's a very not economic perspective. Um but yeah. but you know very quickly that kind of became a political liability for 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 Johnson because what happened was that well it turned out when you when you told people to do that in cities it worked and they started making demands and the people they were making demands <laughs> on were these democratic mayors, right? And so the mayors start calling up Johnson and there's like this is not, this is not cool. We, we do not like this. And so, you know, you also have in the mix, this other way of thinking about poverty. That's very, that's very kind of income driven. That's also focused on like, yeah, let's use the state to solve poverty, but that doesn't really have any interest in this idea that, you know, what we want to do is create political voice, right? It's, it's, it's kind of grounded in a very different theory of you know, what's going wrong when people are in poverty and like, how do we fix it? Well, we give them money. Um, and so, and so, you know, so it becomes this, this, this way to solve a political problem for somebody. And I think you can see that it happen in, in, in a lot of different places, right? Like the reason that it's so successful is that it works and it works not just in the sense of being helpful in making decisions, but in being politically useful as well. Well, yeah, but this, this is the, the sort of irony or the, the puzzle that emerges, right? Is that all of these initiatives that first put these ideas to use that you talk about, uh, they fail and they <laughs> fail like utterly. Like, like we could talk yeah. about, uh, the planning programming budgeting system in the sixties that was sort of based on the Rand idea. You can also talk about the application of these sorts of economic ideas to the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. But what I, I mean, like, and, and zero based budgeting in the seventies, <laughs> the list goes on. And so like one question I, I kept coming up with, is, you know, how do they, you know, how do the proponents of these ideas get around that uh, failure? How do they explain <laughs> that? Or is it just, is it just, uh, for example, they're like, 
well, clearly that means that we need more of this. Uh, <laughs> like that we have, we just haven't perfected it yet, which is kind of a great, it's a, it's a truly great gig is like, well, we've screwed up and obviously these ideas are bankrupt, but like, but that actually creates us the justification for continue to do it. But I, I wonder if you could talk about like the, what you call in the book, I think quite cleverly, like the success of failure. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, right. That there's this way, like, I think you're, you're, absolutely right like the, the one of the things that is really um powerful about all this is that you know you can't always just say oh we just weren't doing it well enough right like right. it didn't work but it wasn't us like the 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 you know the sort of rational way of thinking about problems is 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 fine and if we could just implement it better then then things would be okay and so like it's easy to say there's always a there's always a, a next time but but yeah i mean in the like to to get back into some of the historical specifics what ended up happening uh, in in the mid to late 1960s? You know, I mentioned that Johnson rolled out this system that was that was kind of introduced at the Defense Department and and took it and expanded it across all of government, right? So this is 1965. This mm-hmm. uh, technique is called the Planning, Programming, Budgeting System, and you know they roll it out across Washington, and it's like immediately clear that it's not going to work. Like it does not take long at all. Um, because this isn't how, you know, so, so, so what it's trying to do basically is it's asking agencies to identify what their goals are that they're trying to achieve. And then famously sort of, easy to do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, right, so they're, 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 and then compare the relative cost effectiveness of different programs that might allow you to reach those goals. And, and it's that process of, you know, looking for cost-effective paths to reach a goal that's supposed to guide you as you budget. And so one, <laughs> nobody knows how to do this, right? Nobody, agencies don't know what their goals are. You know, they don't have the people who have, are trained to do these kinds of, this, to, to think about problems in this way. Um, two, it totally ignores politics. And so all the time they're creating, you know, these, these they're creating these reams of documents that are saying, here's what our plan is. And somebody else is just going, you know, making a call to somebody in Congress and, and getting the numbers changed. And, you know, and it's just like, it's, it's very immediately clear that it's not working, but it creates all this stuff that that nevertheless spreads this way of thinking. And so, you know, one, it ends up creating a sort of what I'm calling a policy planning office in pretty much, uh, you know, most to all of the federal agencies. Yeah. So this becomes kind of a base for economic reasoning within each agency. You know, those don't go away just because they stop using the budgeting system in a few years. You know, two, it creates uh, public policy schools, which are their curriculums oriented around microeconomics. And, it, you know, it's a very explicitly public policy schools are created to produce the kinds of analyses that PPBS was demanding. PPBS created this demand public policy schools are produ- created to produce it. And obviously they certainly outlast uh, this this way of thinking and it creates all these different new think tanks, policy research organizations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really grows this space of kind of the, the organizations in Washington that, that, that live around government, right? And that are the place that um, a lot of policy options come from, you know? And so this is where kind of spreading this broad way of thinking around Washington ends up being very important in because because the people in those organizations, you know, in think tanks and so on, are the ones who are coming up with the ideas that are going to get considered as as politicians decide, well, you know, 
we're looking to solve a problem. What, what are the policy options that we've got? So that's really interesting. Right. So it's like the ideas fail, but what they produce are these institutions that exist and then become the main sites where all of these policy um, proposals and this way of thinking live on. So like in the, in the bureaucracy, I guess it would be the assistant secretaries of planning and evaluation, that sort of office. Mm -hmm. That's like the office that commissions the RAND, the health insurance uh, experiment Mm -hmm. uh, or the OEO, I guess. Um, And then in Congress, you have the Congressional Budget Office, which mm-hmm. is then mandated to do all of these studies. Like it's programmed by Congress to do these things, kind of regardless of what happens. And then you eventually get cost-benefit analysis, which is sort of locked in uh, by the early 80s. So it's sort of like, even if the results of, I guess, I'm curious, is this what you're saying? That like, even if the results of these things, even if all of this stuff produces terrible public policy, what it does is is it simultaneously produces like an evaluative apparatus, a set of institutions, which then become what it looks like to do serious policy thinking so that eat like, so that even when these things fail, it's really hard to have something very clear that like challenges them because the whole apparatus is filled with people who are thinking in this way. Is that right. more or less is like, that's kind of confusing, but like, is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, no, no, that's, that's a very nice, uh, that's a very nice uh, summary of it. I mean, and I think, um, you know, I think one thing that happens, you know, on the on the on the political side is that analysis and sort of facility with numbers becomes a political tool for for getting things done in Washington. Um, and so, you know, so so what ends up happening is that, you know, you will have the creation of some kind of analytic unit, you know, some kind of office within an agency that's, you know, that's broadly equipped to think this way, make these kinds of analyses. And then they'll, the, the, the analyses prove to be kind of a political resource. Um, and then other spaces that are maybe competing with them are like, oh, well, we need one too. We need to be able to create our own kind of uh, numbers so that we can tell a different story because we don't want to just listen to the one they're telling. And so, you know, the Congressional Budget Office is a, is a great example of this, uh, you know, as a result of PPBS, you know, by 1970, all these uh, sort of executive branch agencies had these analytic offices, had a lot of capacity to, to do this sort of analysis or, you know, were developing that capacity. Um, and it was starting to be a problem for Congress because, you know, the president could bring numbers from from these agencies and Congress didn't really have anything of their own to, to compare um, with them. And so Congress was like, well, gee, we need we need something to, to compete with this. Um, you know, we need to be able to produce our own numbers that aren't reliant on the executive branch. Um, and so, so they create CBO, and then a CBO becomes a space where, you know, where this where this kind of reasoning is very strongly institutionalized into the legislative process as well. It's so fascinating. It's almost like the so it's like this process almost becomes it it becomes so trendy that you kind of have to use it yourself, even if you were someone who weren't who wasn't like committed to the sort of economic style as, a, as an ideological project, it becomes so ubiquitous that it's essentially forced uh, into this dominant position, which, you know, leads to all sorts of policy limitations. I mean, the, this kind of this kind of uh, change, right, socially speaking within Washington has really long term effects in terms of like putting up roadblocks and hindering policy. I mean, we are still seeing the effects of this, right? I mean, at the very beginning of your book, you bring up the ACA and we Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, the sort of limitations of 
political will and the political imaginary right now and how they're so constrained by cost benefit analysis that it makes it so that sort of day one, you can't get certain policy ideas off the ground because they're categorically um, unreasonable. And this is the kind of rhetoric that once it became dominant is what makes that uh, position unreasonable. It's what makes something like a universal program to do Medicare again, right, to do something like Medicare for all. That's where the kind of, you know, foundations of the framework that uh, inspire people like Matt Iglesias to sit around and blog all day that it's like never going to happen, <laughs> right? Or or whoever, really, because it's whoever, because it's not about the figures. It's about how the values become institutionalized and become naturalized. And then, you know, they gain even further dominance. And, you know, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how partisanship kind of plays into this as well, because, it, it it's not neutral, right? Uh, this is something we talk about on the show all the time. And one thing you talk about in your book is that conservatives are very good at sort of employing this rhetoric when it supports what they want and ignoring it otherwise, but that Democrats have this sort of tendency to feel tethered to it regardless, as if it's almost like a respectability issue. And then you even have people like Charles Schultz from uh, the Carter administration who call uh, you know, this economic style of, of reasoning, basically, what was it? It's a uh, it's a partisan efficiency advocate. Oh, yeah. Which is just yeah. a terminology I love. Yeah, yeah. No. And I think, um, yeah, no, I, I love that phrase, too. Right. Like, I think I think you start to see this divergence pretty early. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, Nixon is still kind of more like, you know, Nixon, Nixon is so, sort of also constrained by economic reasoning in some ways, you know, and there's sort of like different wings within his administration in terms of, uh, you know, how conservative do you actually want to be? But Nixon's actual policy proposals are in you know many ways relatively consonant with this broadly economic style of thinking, you know, but certainly by the Carter administration, uh, you really start to see Dem- Democrats becoming constrained by it. You know, and I think in some ways, like there's a lot of things going on that cause that, right? I mean, there's just like who Carter is as an individual. He's this kind of, you know, engineer with this sort of technocratic orientation. You know, there's there's these sort of external pressures that are giving more power to to the more centrist wing of the of the party. But you know, whatever those reasons are, you know, you start to have the the, the policies kind of have to be couched in this economic language to be seen as reasonable and to kind of get on the table in the first place. But, you know, Reagan is really the one who kind of breaks away from this and who really doesn't care about whether, you know, something is economically reasonable or not. (laughs) Um, And his administration, at least, is very good at using it strategically. So he's able to kind of push it forward in areas where it aligns with what his existing political agenda is. He ignores it and cuts it back in areas where it's not and, uh, you know, and is really using it strategically in the service of of other goals, whereas, you know, the Democrats uh, kind of kind of continue to find themselves constrained by it. Yeah, it sort of reminds me a little bit of the 2017 Republican tax cut, which, you know, very, very contrastive with Democrats was like when the CBO score comes out and it's not great. Republicans just say yeah, whatever. Like it's just, they just didn't do the analysis. Right. And it's fine. It's, 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 you know, deficit neutral, et cetera. And we're just going to like press on. Um, whereas, you know, Democrats placed in the same situation would have been like, you know, I can imagine like furiously running back to like, you know, running back. Like, what if we did this? What if we do these other numbers, you know, trying to get the good score and like, 
you know, I, I think what you illustrate is like, that's not just a, you know, Democrats are from Mars and uh, Republicans are from Venus <laughs> sort of difference. It's like that is actually kind of embedded into the way that kind of the professions uh, interact with the parties and kind of what the norms are within the professions and how those align with what's what's going on in the parties. Yeah. And what's the more fundamental value, right, is the more fundamental value that we're going to we're going to create a, a budget that is sustainable for the long run or that is deficit neutral or whatever the whatever the underlying goal is or is the fundamental value to get something done because as a party you believe in lower taxes or you believe in a smaller government kind of across the board and uh yeah and i think i think democrats have typically not been very willing to take a very strong stand on issues that are more fundamental than than what the cbo score comes out as and, you know, and I think you can argue, uh, you know, certainly lots of room to debate. Well, are, you know, are they really constrained? Right. Like, is it really, you know, the economists or the people sort of who are part of this broad infrastructure that are are constraining? Or is it really just about broader political forces? Right. Right. There's a lot of reproduction, too, and a lot of like room and capacity and resources behind echoing and like, you know, maintaining the the image basically that this is a a totally like second nature, naturalized, normal, quote unquote, normal thing to do <laughs> when it comes to looking at policy, that this is kind of almost the only way to evaluate policy that's possible now. I mean, that's kind of at the point that we're at where people don't think of policy analysis beyond like what is the uh, sort of economic cost benefit, right? Or what is the, the relationship of this policy to inflation? Right. I mean, and, but, but, you know, I think it doesn't have to be that way. Right. And like, we've seen <laughs> <Yes>. some movement <laughs> and, and I think that, that to the extent that you're going to, you know, push back against this stuff, it's going to be because there is a strong left that's coming out of you know, social movements that co- that's coming out of other spaces and that just kind of, you know, sees what the approach of the last 30, 40 years has gotten us and says, well, that's really not doing much for me. You know, why, why would I, feel constrained by this and sort of thinking about what the what the range of possibilities might be. Um, and, you know, and if, if that branch is is politically influential enough, obviously, you know, you can end up having different kinds of people being appointed, you know, different kinds of proposals, at least as starting points, even if they're not getting implemented. Well, that's actually where I wanted to to go to next, which is that, you know, I, I think one question that emerges from your s- story is, you know, this style of reasoning we, we recognize is very important in the way that it affects public policy, that it constrains what is going to be seen as a reasonable or good policy proposal. And it is sort of baked into many of the institutions that like define, you know, policy sort of within government. So in thinking about where alternative styles of reasoning come from and how they break through, uh, what is the evidence in, in your book kind of tell you about how that happens. Cause I think this is a, a question that a lot of people are thinking about. And like there, I think many different perspectives, not necessarily mutually exclusive, but like, I think one sort of perspective on this might be that what really matters is the political movement. And then, you know, actually having sort of political power for the working class. And mm-hmm. then that somehow generates maybe demand for different kinds of analyses. I think there might be another perspective that's, that says, well, you know, you also have to have some layer of people who have a different style of reasoning and are actually explicitly, explicitly developing that and thinking about how to illustrate the contradictions in the style of reasoning that's sort of most prominent. How do you think about 
uh, the answer to that question and, and sort of what does the, the evidence in your book tell you? Yeah, I mean, I think they're sort of inseparable from each other, right? That, that Sure, of course. Um, you know, you're not going to have uh, a bunch of academics or sort of, you know, policy experts come up with a very different way of, of thinking about problems and just, you know, they're not going to be able to, right, they, they can come up with a framework, they can come up with new ways of thinking about things, but it's just not going to make a difference unless the sort of, you know, that there's, there's sort of a favorable political environment, right? And so what does that actually look like? I mean, most likely that looks like political movements, right? And so that you've got, um, you've got people who are coming in who are not as beholden to the existing way of doing things. And then that is something that, you know, allows people, experts with competing, with competing frameworks or competing ways of thinking about problems to start to have a little bit more, more influence. But at the same time, right, like, I think that, I think that if you've got left movements, or if that you've got new politicians who are coming in who are further to the left, then they're going to be looking for experts. So I think it sort of creates this demand within spaces of expertise, you know, within Mm -hmm. academic circles, within think tanks, and so on, that uh, generates alternatives. And so, yeah, and so I think, uh, yeah, I guess if I had to say one is more important, it's the political movement, not the experts. But I think the experts are always going to be the, the the channel through which this stuff gets translated into actual policies on the ground. One of the things that I really appreciated about, especially like towards the end of the book, where you, you uh, have the section called like lessons for the practically minded, is you actually mention <laughs> um, an instance of this that we covered in depth recently on the show which is Section 504 of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act. Uh, I'll just quote that paragraph. In reality, American political institutions rarely treat rights, even those enshrined in law, as 100% absolute. For example, in the 1970s, people with disabilities gained the right to access federally funded services, notably public transportation, on equal grounds. But within the Carter administration, the economists responsible for reviewing cost-benefit analysis of regulations were particularly upset with the enormous price tag of retrofitting New York City subway stations. In their analysis, the cost of making these stations accessible was too high given the number of people who would be affected. Despite the nominal right to transportation, many of these stations are still not wheelchair accessible 40 plus years later. And this is something we covered in in our Section 504 episode. This is not something we actually covered in our Section 504 episode, but we did cover at length sort of the development of how this cost benefit analysis becomes to be demanded because this is a civil rights law that passes, right? And what's going on in the beginning is that they're saying, um, you know, this is something that we don't want to explicitly write cost into the law that you cannot, you know, morally do this. And Phil uh, called it, uh, Phil said on that episode, this is what policymaking was like before the mandate of cost benefit analysis, right? <laughs> and just to even, um, you know, it was so overwhelming the response to that episode of people just writing into us saying like, wow, I had no idea that there was ever another way to do policy before cost-benefit analysis. They had no sort of conception of it, of it being anything beyond that immediate um, like sort of necessity, right? It's naturalized. And I think what we need, obviously, is a sort of like dual movement towards recognizing other types of valuation and analysis beyond the mere uh, economic. You know, I mean, I'm sure people are coming at you, Beth, being like, well, is this book like 
anti-economics. Like, what do you want to do? Like, abolish <laughs> economics? And I feel like what your argument is like, no, she's trying need- to cancel economics. <laughs> <laughs> How dare she, right? No, but I really do feel like it comes through so strong in your book that what you're saying is that this is not a natural requirement. This is not a law of nature like gravity. Like, this is a choice and that we can also choose to have a multitude of expertise here and not rely on the sole framework that we've come to rely upon as if it's the only framework that that works. Yeah. And and I think really, right, like, I am not looking to to get rid of economics <laughs> by any means, if any, if that were, uh, you know, even possible to to think about. But, you know, but I, what I would really like to see is, is sort of an economic lens for thinking about policy problems understood as having a particular set of values, you know, having its own moral valence, that it's not this neutral thing. Um, and that and that other frameworks for thinking about what we might want to accomplish with policy, yes, they may may conflict with that sometimes, but they conflict with that for for important reasons. And right. they may be moral reasons, they may be political sure. reasons. But simply saying that they're unreasonable because that's not the lens that they start with is um, you know, not only wrongheaded. I don't think it even, you know, I don't even think it achieves the things that, that, you know, liberal economists would want to achieve. You know, I think sort of, you know, starting with a cost benefit approach as, as, as your starting point tends to, um, you know, whatever you end up with tends to be even further away from, from what the, uh, the original political goal was. Yeah. It's, 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 that's, that's a really funny point. I, I, when I teach public policy or teach policy analysis, like, you know, I, I want my students to understand what the the state of the art is, right? So I teach a sort of conventional book, uh, but then ultimately you realize like it's not the state of the art; it's the art of the state, uh, ultimately. <laughs> and uh, yeah. the and it's funny because it's like, okay, we're going to teach you all of this sort of cost benefit analysis, and then by the way, there are these other other ways that you might do things. And if you're interested about, you can go <laughs> read about that elsewhere, like ethical analysis or you know a, you know analyzing uh, a, any of the other sort of like intangible non-monetizable values like uh but anyway getting back to the point right so you know i i'm curious if there are examples of a kind of alternative style of reasoning that you see either you know kind of emerging or even if it's embryonic Mm -hmm. and, and sort of where that's happening where you see kind of um kind of promise not to set you up for for like a sequel but you know just like where you know uh like what where do you see that happening um if anywhere yeah i mean um like i mean i think with cost benefit analysis specifically right like i think there's a lot of room to introduce other kinds of priorities still broadly within a cost benefit framework so you don't necessarily have to abolish cost benefit analysis entirely to um, to say that, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to count some additional things or we're going to, you know, weight distribution more explicitly when we think about what the costs and benefits, you know, we're going to care about who it actually is that this that this policy is, uh, you know, doing harm to or, or benefiting. So, like, there, there are these ways in which there could be pretty significant change within the within the existing framework. Um, but I do think, you know, that that there also need to be broader frameworks that are going to, you know, not necessarily start with that as, as, as the way of thinking about what makes good policy. And, um, you know, and I think like this one space that I think is really interesting and, and, and promising is, uh, you know, there's this, this law of political economy movement, which is happening in, in, in law schools and that is sort of, um, focused on 
people who are interested in putting power and rights, uh, equality kind of at the center of their their intellectual framework. Um, you know, this is happening in some extent. It's a it's a reaction to the success that law and economics as a movement has had within within law schools. Um, but that's really kind of grappling around trying to develop alternative ways of of thinking about you know, what's going on in politics, what it is that we, we want to achieve and, you know, what the role of law is in that. Um, and that the, the seems like it's both having real world political influence and also uh, is drawing a lot of interest and support from law students, because I think there's a lot of people who are, who are you know, currently in school who are 23 and in a, in a graduate program of some sort who are also not very happy with the, with the status quo and who are looking for alternatives. And so there's a lot of demand for that. Um, and I think, you know, that's one place where I see really interesting work being done that has the potential to actually make it back into policy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you make a recommendation, a sort of small recommendation that I think is really important, which reflects something that we say on the show often when we talk about Medicare for All, uh, which is that you say that people who want to advocate for other approaches need to start by basically clearly stating that they, you know, think that the economic style fails as a approach to analyzing that policy. And that's something that we talk about all the time when we say, you know, it doesn't matter what Medicare for all costs, right? That's not actually the the proper analysis to be using to determine if Medicare for all is a good policy. Like it is an instance where cost benefit analysis cannot evaluate the policy, right? And that there is a sort of position that needs to be taken instead of arguing that, oh, no, like we're going to save X many dollars in, you know, that's going to go back into your paycheck and we're going to like reduce all of these costs on employers and we're going to make businesses competitive with European businesses because they're not because they have to pay for health insurance. You know, that all of that sort of is in and of itself, like it only reinforces the reasoning that will, in effect, always undermine a policy like Medicare for All. So if you're serious about Medicare for All, you also have to be serious about tackling the rhetorical structures which are embedded in the institutions that um, are sort of responsible for not just passing Medicare for All, but who will be responsible for implementing it, who will be responsible at the local level, right? That this is a project that is just so much bigger than the one policy itself. It's about, you know, deciding, I think, that we can collectively ourselves sort of like reform rhetoric you know, towards goals that we as a quote unquote left as like decentralized as the left is like there are some clear policy goals that much of the left has in common, whether it's Medicare for all or it's the Green New Deal. Right. That there that there can be like many other ways to approach these policies other than trying to beat people at their own cost benefit game. Yeah. And I think it's such a good point. And I think it's really hard to avoid because, you know, I think any time that you sort of actually get into the you know, the, the, the political weeds, it's, it's, it's just so tempting to try to justify what you're doing in economic terms, because it's so taken for granted that that's what you need to do. Right. And I think you see that, um, you know, one, one place I think that's interesting that you see this a lot going on right now is in this debate over, over student loan forgiveness. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. Where, where you've got liberals who are against canceling student loans because, uh, it's going to benefit people who, you know, went to medical school and took out a lot of loans and uh, don't really need it. Um, and, you know, so you could make the case just based on 
some kind of moral claim, you know, on the idea that that we should have access to education. You could do it based on the on the fact that the way the loan program has actually been implemented over the last couple of decades has just sort of been a disaster, and so people are burdened with all this debt that they never, you know, they never really understood what they were getting into, and 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 makes it very hard to get out of. Um, but you know, but what what ends up happening is that a lot of people who are are advocating for, you know, cancellation still find themselves making trying to make the position on economic grounds. And so you start saying, you, you try to present the numbers a different way and say, oh, look, uh, you know, uh, one way that it's framed has been about around around race. Well, you know, there's these racial disparities that would help fix. And so that's one alternative way to make the case. Um, you know, you can say, oh, well, if you uh, take people into account who didn't have to borrow money at all, then it looks like it's it's not regressive anymore. And so like on the one hand, I think you do have to do that to some extent once you're into these political debates. But I also think you need people who are making these very strong moral arguments from the from as a starting point um because if you if you just take the approach of let's make the strongest argument that we can within this economic style uh you know it's it's you're not gonna it's not gonna be a very strong starting position well yeah part of it is finding a way of actually articulating very clearly what the problems with that orthodoxy are for solving some of the most important problems that we as a society have to solve. Like it actually does require making that argument really Mm -hmm. explicit and having a a plinth on which to stand uh, to make a different one. Um, And that's sort of, I think one of maybe the heartening things in your book is that these is, is to discover that people had to make arguments for this style of reasoning before it existed. And they could just have, you know, as easy, people can just as easily, in a way, make arguments for a different style of reasoning, that it is, in fact, a part of what it means to engage in politics, to have that kind of creativity um, and to make that a, a big part of the the project. I think that that is, uh, you know, I didn't leave reading your book feeling gloomy. I actually realized, like, by thinking yeah. about, like, people had to create these things. Okay, fine. Um it it opens up a space of possibility for for thinking about how things can be done differently. Yeah, I mean, and I guess if you know, there's one like small practical contribution that the book can can make. I mean, I hope it is that you know that it reaches some people who sort of are able to see where this way of thinking came from. You know, to to denaturalize it a little bit and to kind of shed light on like what some of those what some of those um you know leverage points might might be so that. You know, I think it's I think it's very hard to challenge it if you don't really understand mm-hmm. why it's there and why it's as, as influential as it is. So, you know, my hope is that by kind of seeing uh, by, by understanding that history and by understanding the mechanics of that a little better, it it gives people some new space to think about, OK, well, well, you know, how can we think about alternatives and what would it actually take to get them uh, put into place. Yeah, absolutely. No, and and I think, you know, I hope listeners uh, go and sit down now and read the whole book because there is this whole fantastic, really detailed story about the sort of institutional development that we've been, um, you know, just barely scratching the surface on. But it's been really just so nice to have this conversation with you, Beth, about this book because, it, I mean, it's I I really have appreciated your past work, and I know you've been working on this for a long time. And that sometimes when these projects take so <laughs> long, they become very painful. But you know, I, I I think what it 
reflects, though, is just a tremendous amount of like thought and care in terms of approaching this issue and not just thinking about how to communicate it to people, but like really what the point of other people knowing this story is. And sometimes that's not something that we sort of stop and think of. But this book is not just a history. It's like a tremendously useful guide for like any activist who's working on a campaign around like economic justice or, or you know, around Medicare for all or any of this stuff right now, because these are the sort of tools that are used against you if you're working on this stuff. And it's great to see that this sort of can operate at both registers, right? Well, thank you, because that's very much what uh, what I was hoping it would do. So it's really nice to hear somebody <laughs> say that, that, that that's what it accomplished. It's always good, right? Uh, as long as if one person gets it, then that's that's all that matters. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Beth, thank you so much for coming today. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you about your book, um, yeah. which is Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. There is a link to pick up the book in the episode description. Highly recommend this. I've read it twice now. I'm going to read you so it a third time. <laughs> no, it's so good. <laughs> Seriously. And if you want to follow Beth on Twitter, she is at epop. PPP. Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. It was really good to talk to you. And listeners, if you'd like to help support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And as always... Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. Thank you.